It is 2.02 here on 98.1 WQAQ. I am your host of Throwback Saturday, uh, Peter Howarth, and we're going to talk about what's going on in baseball, football, and basketball and interpret it through the lens of statistics. So uh, it's been a real wild week across uh, professional sports, um, partially because of uh, just what's been happening. You have the NFL heading into... Week six, uh, the baseball playoffs are starting, and then basketball and hockey. Hockey just started up this past week. The NBA starts on Tuesday. Meanwhile, there's still college football happening, um, so it is a real busy time to be a sports fan. Um, it's actually they consider it a sports equinox. Um, yeah, some fun facts about it is that yeah, it, uh, they had one last year, October 21st, and it, it was an equinox because. Uh, the NFL, MLB, NHL, and NBA all had a game on the same day. doesn't happen that often. It only happens in the fall because you have baseball at the end of the season, uh, football is happening, then hockey and basketball are just starting. Um, and so, yeah, October 21st last year was the 25th sports equinox since 1971. Um, and then uh, this article from CBS Sports, some real interesting facts about the sports equinoxes is that Arizona had their own uh, just within the state because they had all four major men's sports happening on the same day. So that means the Cardinals, Diamondbacks, the Coyotes, and the Suns all played the same day. It, and uh, According to this article, it's the only state to have all four teams play on the same day. I haven't uh, been able to check out the schedule that much, but you know we do have a chance of possibly having one coming up uh, in 2016. There was a uh, sports equinox where they had 27 games in one day. That's the most in an equinox. And then very unique on uh, 2020 due to uh, due to the COVID-19 pandemic, there were a lot of leagues that delayed their seasons or maybe started earlier. So, um, but yes, that day, uh, September 10th, 2020, had the NFL, MLB, NBA, WNBA, MLS, tennis, and NHL all playing on the same day um so that is absolutely crazy um uh, not something you'll see again um I, I think a lot of sports fans were you know that was a real wild time because there's a real dearth of um sports content uh, after everything was halted i mean the the last dance became a real uh weekly event uh sort of in substitute of of a, a maybe like a football sunday sort of thing um so uh, that was really cool to see, so keep an eye out for that because it, it is uh, arguably the best time of year to be a sports fan. So uh, also what I normally do to start the show is go over some things that we talked about last week and if there's been any developments or any changes. Um, lately, I've been making my Thursday night football predictions because it is 2 p.m. on Thursday when I am doing the show. If you're listening to this through the podcast, it would be on a Friday afternoon, so you can listen and see how wrong or right I was. Now, uh, if you didn't watch last week's Thursday Night Football game, then good for you. You were spared. Uh, it was between the Colts and the Broncos uh, in Denver, and it was a 12-9 game, in o and it went to overtime. No touchdowns scored. Some people are calling it one of the worst games ever, and uh, just for a lot of reasons. I mean, on paper, it shouldn't have looked like that bad. even if the Colts and the Broncos have been underwhelming and underperforming, 
uh, this season, it, it shouldn't have been that bad. I mean, Wilson and Matt, Russell Wilson and Matt Ryan, they were had a combined 10 sacks. They were 47 of 84 picks combined. And the two of them combined of 13 Pro Bowls and an MVP. So you, you wouldn't expect that. I, I've just pulled up some tweets that really help display how putrid of a game it was. Al Michaels saying, sometimes a game could be so bad it's almost good. You know what I mean? And then his partner, the color analyst, Kirk Herbstreet, he just said no. <laughs> Did not elaborate. He just, he just wasn't feeling it. And I, I don't blame him. It was a... A game to end all games. Uh, Mitchell Schwartz, former NFL offensive lineman, said, this is one of the worst games I've ever seen that involves both starting quarterbacks and no bad weather. Yeah, Sometimes there are some games where not a lot of touchdowns or just underwhelming performances, but that could be due to heavy snow, heavy rain, or a lot of injuries for quarterbacks. But no, you had, you had Matt Ryan, Russell Wilson, and it was a pretty nice... October night in Denver. I mean, you couldn't really ask for more. Granted, each team was without their starting running backs in Jonathan Taylor and Javante Williams, but, I mean, come on. <laughs> I mean, Broncos fans were leaving before overtime began, and it was overtime, so it was a tie game in their home stadium, which they should have been favored to win the game with their brand-new quarterback. Demarcus Lawrence, former defensive lineman, said uh is it what's harder to watch this game or the sun this game won 83 percent and twitter poll uh and then i i think this is something that's very interesting roger sherman he's a writer for the ringer um just like let's try to contextualize um because this was a thursday night football game and amazon paid big money for the rights to be the exclusive streaming location of thursday night football for i i forget how long the 11 years 11 years is the contract is before they will sim- they were simulcast on NFL network uh, they are also aired in local markets so if you were in Denver or in Indy I believe the game you could watch on your local Fox affiliate so um, and I believe uh, I don't know if I can find the number again but it's about 20% of viewers are watch it through their local affiliates so still Amazon is getting 80% of the viewership from the games but um, it's nice that if you are from a local market, you don't necessarily have to have Prime to watch your home team. Anyways, so Amazon, what they paid for Thursday Night Football, $13 billion over 11 years. So they pay $1.8, $1.18 billion per year. There are 15 Thursday Night Football games per year because week one belongs to the season opener, which NBC usually has the rights to. And then towards the tail end of the season, they sort of wean off those as teams can get more of a seven-day rest schedule in advance of the playoffs. So if you if you break that up, how much they're paying per game, they're paying about $78 million per game. So that means Amazon paid $78 million to broadcast that 12-9 absolute stinker of a game. I just think that is incredibly funny. Uh, that being said, I mean, whatever you think about the game, which it's hard to not have the opinion that it was awful, they they still got good viewership. It had 9.7 million viewers, which does break their streak of over 11 million. Um, and actually, viewership was down 34% compared to Week 5's Thursday night game of last year. 
But that being said, Amazon is still succeeding a lot. Uh, for the first four weeks of Thursday Night Football this year, Amazon has an 11% increase over last season. And this is great for the NFL because essentially this is free money for them because I don't believe there was any exclusive deal made through the NFL network. It was just that was their uh, station, so they decided to do it through them. And also, uh, this is just an interesting fact. If you're into streaming numbers, anything like that, um, uh, Nielsen, who they are sort of the gold standard in measuring viewership for television programs, uh, they... Uh, Amazon let them track the viewing numbers for Thursday Night Football, and that's pretty unprecedented for anything uh, streaming-wise. And so uh, their numbers were up. Um, and so if you're Amazon, you it, it's, it seems like it's been a good investment. Um, and in fact, from internal memos, they're saying that uh, the first uh, Thursday Night Football game of the season, of course, that was... Chargers Chiefs a much more marquee matchup. You would want a a more high profile matchup for your first game of the year. Uh, it according to them, it attracted a record number of signups for Amazon Prime over that three hour period, and that it beat out events like Cyber Monday and Prime Day, which is huge for Amazon. So, uh, with just the grapple that uh, the NFL has, uh, I think you could see more leagues going uh, towards this method. Of course, uh, Turner has a big deal with the NBA uh, in broadcasting a lot of select games over the course of the season on TNT, including opening night, the All-Star game, and several rounds of the NBA playoffs. So I think you could see in the future streaming through something like HBO Max or if they wanted to maybe more spin-off of the service dedicated towards uh, sports content. Uh, you could see something like that because TNT also has, uh, last year, they got some NHL uh, rights as well as they have MLB rights. Uh, they are broadcasting a uh, some of the wild card and divisional series of the MLB playoffs as well. They have select games throughout the regular season. They also have March Madness rights. So they're a real player, and it wouldn't surprise me if they tried to garner a big deal uh, streaming-wise. ESPN also using... ESPN Plus um, in order to do more of a shift towards streaming. Again, wouldn't surprise me. Um, so I think this is really the first hurdle, seeing if something at, like football, which I think is uh, an interesting test because it is football is usually only through uh, uh, broadcast television, so your local channels that you don't need a cable package for other than ESPN. Um, but it has seemed to work well for Amazon, and so um, any stigmas about would this work with something as popular as football, I think, uh, could change. Uh, going on to uh, another topic I want to talk about based off last week's NFL games is roughing the passer. There has been a lot made of some questionable calls, uh, specifically ag uh, against Grady Jarrett when he sacked Tom Brady, while the Falcons were trying to come back against the Buccaneers. Um, that gave Tampa the first down, allowed them to run out the clock and win the game. And, uh, you know, for an Atlanta team that's been feistier than expected and for a Tampa team that has been battling through injuries and, in a way, trying to find their identity, that would have been a huge momentum swing 
also on the road in Tampa. Um, and so you can see the frustration on um, Arthur Smith, the coach's face. Uh, Grady Jarrett, one of the best interior defensive linemen in the league. Um, his, uh, I believe what the rule they cited there in terms of re- roughing the passer was that it was like an egregious toss to the ground. Um, but honestly, Tom Brady worked so hard on trying to get out of sacks and trying to um, escape pressure that, I, I mean, I, you, you have to try to wrap the guy up and, and tackle him. And I didn't think it, it wasn't anything malicious. It wasn't anything uh, uh, grossly uh, dangerous or anything like that. I, I think it just one of the best defensive linemen in football trying to finish a sack, trying to finish a play against the greatest ever. Um, but uh, there was a lot made of of how soft some of these calls are. Uh, Derek Carr also re- was the beneficiary of a call uh, against Chris Jones on Monday Night Football. Uh, the Chiefs did still go on to win the game, but not without some drama, of course, towards the end of the game, Devontae Adams. He uh, pushed a cameraman out of frustration. So another tough loss for the Raiders. But anyways, in terms of roughing the passer, I just have some some history of the rule and how things have changed and also who is who's benefiting from it. So roughing the passer over the years in terms of how often it's been called. So if we look at uh, like the last five years or so, five or six years, 2017, there's 107 roughing the passer calls. 2018, that went up to 118. 2019, that went up to 136. So that's three straight years. 2020, it went slightly down to 127, still up from 2017, 2018, though. 2021, it went up to 154, but because of the expanded regular season, um, it makes sense that went up. And then it is at 24 through 80 total games uh, this season. So it it is something that the league is making more of an emphasis to crack down on. Um, and so I, that's why I think why you've seen this uptick. Uh, then I also found an article from NBC Sports Boston uh, just sort of explaining the history of roughing the passer, and I thought this was very interesting. So they have eight rules to guide uh, roughing the passer and things to look for in order to, uh, to make the call. I'm not going to go through all of them, but some of the things that I think uh, uh, that stand out about some of the calls from this weekend. So uh, a Russian defender is prohibited from committing such intimidating and punishing acts as stuffing a passer into the ground or unnecessarily wrestling or driving him down after the passer has thrown the ball. So that could be what they were calling on Chris Jones, on Derek Carr, that they thought maybe he had too much force um, uh, uh, going on. Uh, referees will, particular, will be particularly alert to fouls in which defenders impermissibly use the helmet and or face mask to hit the passer or use hands, arms, or other parts of the body to hit the passer forcibly in the head or neck area. Uh, Jared Goff was the beneficiary of that call against the Patriots, even if the Lions couldn't even put up a single point in the game. Um, I, I thought it was a weak call at the time. It was um, I, I could not tell you who the pass rusher was on the Patriots anymore, but he, uh, Goff was uh, going uh, falling backwards after the throw, and he lightly got tapped on the chin, not enough to make him fall or really anything, but because he was hit in the general head and neck area, that was enough to um, 
uh, received that call, and I thought that was a little bogus to me just because uh, well, there wasn't any malicious intent. It, it didn't have a factor on the play. I didn't think it should have been called, but if they're being strict to the rule, then I think uh, that's the case here. Uh, and so in, in terms of uh, some other things about roughing the passer, uh, so it was implemented in 1940, the rule, according to the NFL rulebook, um, and so that's when they introduced a 15-yard roughing the passer penalty, and that's because passing became a, a lot more part of the game. And the, the rule has changed a little bit over the years in terms of tweaks to wording, um, but the biggest change came in 2018, which was when the league, uh, quote, emphasized the body weight rule that prohibited the defender from landing with his full weight. And again, that is what we saw with Chris Jones and Derek Carr, that you shouldn't be trying to put your full weight on the quarterback because that's a lot of force and um, I guess in the eyes of the league that is uh, unnecessary not needed in order to make a, a clean and legal sack uh, but as it pertains to for instance Tom Brady there was a lot of talk and uh, I've just we I think it's something that we've heard over the years that uh, Brady gets so many of these calls that it seems that whenever Tom Brady's in a game he is the beneficiary of a roughing the passer call but actually uh been tracking the numbers since 2009 matt ryan is the quarterback who's been roughed uh the most 56 flags of roughing the passer thrown against matt ryan uh 10 last year uh, ryan fitzpatrick has 52 matthew stafford 40 aaron Rodgers 38 ryan Tannehill 38 as well um but uh so brady actually uh, just has has not been a high number in terms of since he's gone to Tampa. He is 16th in roughing the passer penalties with six. Matt Ryan leads since 2020 with 17. Josh Allen with 16. Brian Tannehill with 15. Jared Goff with 13. I think why Matt Ryan is probably in the lead by a and then by Ryan Fitzpatrick uh, is because other than the um, 20. Was that 2017, 2016 NFL season when the Falcons were in the Super, in Super Bowl 51? The Falcons have not been a winning football team, and for the most part, neither have Ryan Fitzpatrick's team. So that means they have to throw the ball a lot. And uh, I, from what I remember, the Falcons and then whatever teams uh, Ryan Fitzpatrick has been on, because he has been uh, around the league a lot offensive lines have not been the strongest part of their teams and so you are looking at a team that he doesn't have a lot of protection up front and he has to throw the ball a lot which means there's gonna constantly gonna be a lot of pressure in, in Matt Ryan and he, he will have a higher likelihood of getting sacked and the more times you're vulnerable to a sack and he there is an ability to have a judgment call on a roughing the passer or not you know that's just more of an opportunity to get a call. I mean, Tom Brady gets rid of the ball as fast as anyone in the league. Uh, in addition to he ha has had stretches with New England and Tampa with very, very above average pass blocking offensive lines. Um, you know, he's had weaker lines, of course, over the years, but you know, there's been ebbs and flows in terms of the roster around him. But anyways, uh, the Patriots have been and and the Bucks since he joined them have been successful franchises who have been able to win games. So. Although Tom has thrown the ball a lot over the last two years, uh, usually it's a pretty balanced approach. He's not asked to drop back an inordinate amount of snaps. 
he's had good protection and he gets through the ball quick and so if you do that you're not going to get sacked as many times you're not going to get roughing the passers of course you can get a roughing the passer without getting sacked if he lets go of the ball and then gets hit below the knees or in the face mask area or uh, too long after the ball has been thrown that it, it would be seen as uh, unnecessary um, but yeah so Tom Brady he really doesn't get hit more than uh, more more than you would think uh, in fact uh, so Brady has a a podcast series at XM show with Jim Gray and he noted out that uh, Brady had just one roughing the passer last year and none when in 2019 and again he is 16th since 2020 and then since he's been sacked since 2010 he has been he has drawn roughing flags 2.1 percent of the time which would be 61st out of 91 quarterbacks that have been sacked at least 100 times since 2010 so again um you know brady's just good at not getting sacked i mean he has a quote actually from the show where he said because i'm a pocket passer a lot of these roughing the passers come with guys extending plays which i don't really do so that doesn't surprise me i'm down on the list i'd love to be up there a, a little bit higher and get some 15 yard penalties for my team but it's not always the case unfortunately funny he says unfortunately i mean if if you're getting roughed it's usually you're getting hit below the knee which is very vulnerable to injury or in the head and neck area which you know, all bets are off when that uh, happens. But, um, yeah, I mean, like I was saying, I, he just gets through the ball quick, and he's not really trying to extend plays. He is one of the best in, um, I, I forget, I believe Tony Romo talks about this. Like, it, it won't go down on the stat sheet, but when he's able to get rid of the ball when there's pressure in his face, throw it into the ground when the screen is blown up, um, being able to extend a drive by not accumulating negative yardage. Uh, again, not something that shows up on the stat sheet but it is another factor of tom brady's uh, brilliance and actually the because of all the um uh, backlash i guess i would call it against roughing the passer from questioning the rules uh, apparently this according to espn sources and the associated press that the nfl's competition committee they're the ones who review and and look to make rule changes based off play in the league that they will have plans to discuss roughing the passer penalties after the season, uh, quote, amid outrage over two disputed calls in week five. Um, so that's that's something to look out for. Chris Jones, who, again, he had a call go against him on Monday Night Football. He suggested that they should maybe have video review of roughing calls. I don't know if I agree with that, just because I think many people have... Um, gotten sort of annoyed by how many um reviewable calls there are really in any sport through baseball the nfl and the nba just how momentum can be stopped i think less so in the nfl just due to how um stop and start the the product on the field is but uh i this could be something along the lines of making pass interference reviewable that was after the saints got uh, sort of screwed on that uh, in the, I believe it was the NFC Championship game uh, a couple years ago. And so they made it reviewable for a challenge the, in the following season, um, but they only did it the one season. It didn't stay, and it's not something that exists anymore, and I don't think people were too upset that it went. Um, anyways, I digress. Uh, something else I want to talk about quickly is concussions, because after Tuatagavailoa, 
and the mishandling of his situation because it, it seems like he exhibited signs of head trauma uh, two weeks ago against uh, w- when the Dolphins uh, prevailed against the Bills at home. Um, he was able to come back in the game when maybe he shouldn't have. And then he was still cleared to play on Thursday Night Football against the Bengals two weeks ago. Um, and uh, and he got another head injury then. And I think a lot of people questioned the way that the rules were implemented and that there needs to be some sort of change in either the concussion protocol or the steps that players need to exhibit or go through in order to be cleared for competition, um, mainly just for the health and safety of the players. I mean, we shouldn't have a situation like Tua had where we're questioning why he even was able to play in the game on Thursday, but if you got over or past that point, you're wondering, you know, why why are we putting this guy in a situation to um, face multiple concussions? And when you have multiple concussions without letting even one heal, I mean, there could be devastating consequences. But so against uh, a lot of the backlash and the, the controversy that, the concussion protocol has garnered. Um, we saw the NFL and the NFLPA add some new criteria for what a player must uh, meet in order to return to action. Um, and so the uh, you, you saw this uh, actually last week with Teddy Bridgewater of the of the Miami Dolphins as well. He got uh, he appeared to have a head injury early in the game. And reports are that he actually cleared protocol according to the NFL's original protocol. But what they have now is they have another, like, uh, uh, it's a spotter or a, or just another uh, neurological consultant. And what they are doing is they're able to make uh, just like an overriding call, I guess. So they saw that the quarterback experienced a, a tasia. Uh, Atasia, Atasia, um, and they were able to rule him out for the rest of the game. And so that is this this word that that sort of has been incorporated into the new protocol. So people are wondering what it is. Um, according to John Hopkins Medicine, Atasia, or Atasia, I don't know how to say it, uh, it, it literally means without coordination, and it results from uh, damage to the brain, damage to the part of the brain that controls muscle coordination or its connections. And so it can be caused by alcohol misuse, stroke, tumors, multiple sclerosis, genetic disorders, or certain medications. Uh, and in terms of the head trauma, uh, severe brain damage could cause, um, could last weeks and months and worst cases could cause, uh, could be fatal. Uh, but according to the National Atasia Foundation, the symptoms are similar to being drunk. So you could have issues with coordination and using extremities, talking, moving, uh, poor balance and so for instance when um, unfortunately I believe again I think it was week three or four the, the the weeks start to blur but when the Dolphins played the Bills at home uh, Tua had a big hit and then he came to his feet and stumbled a little bit from what I can understand of the rules and the symptoms that uh, the teams and neurological consultants and spotters um, are looking for uh, that would check a box for them. Um, that lack of coordination and balance, and so he probably wouldn't be able to return in that game, and he would have to pass more tests in order to return to play in the future. So, I mean, I'm glad we, um, uh, we as if I, I work for the NFL, 
I'm glad the league is learning from their mistakes. It just is really tough that it takes a mistake on a big stage in order to get to this point. Um, and, and really a lot of backlash. Some of that, I think, was doubled down by the fact that Thursday Night Football just showed a lot of replays of that um, of that play when Tua got hit on on Thursday night against the Bengals. And also during the halftime show, it was not really mentioned about Tua's first incident against Buffalo on the Sunday before. So hopefully these new protocols work. I mean, you saw how, again, how it kept uh, Teddy Bridgewater out of the game on Sunday. Again, I would just express more safety of the players because, I mean, players are just such competitors and want to win and, and want to help the team win. You know, they might want to come back in the game, but again, it is it should be out of their, their judgment and out of their hands. And I'm glad there we have, uh, like, more hands on deck, per se, in order to make the right call here. In terms of, like, if concussions have been rising or lowering, uh, since uh, 2015, the NFL, um, they... They have really tried to emphasize uh, more awareness and and data in terms of concussions. So they released, uh, this was in February of this year, they released uh, concussions since 2015 and how many there have been. So uh, in the preseason and regular season combined, in 2015, there were 275. In 2016, 243. 2017, 281. So it went down, then it went uh, way up, um, 15, 16, 17. 2018 down to 214, almost 70, 70 less. 2019 up to 224, an increase of 10 from 2018. 2020 went down to 172, a, a huge decrease, but that was because there were no preseason games in 2020, so have an asterisk there. And then the year after uh, last year, it went up to 187, still under 200, a huge decrease from even five years before granted they changed the structure of the season a little bit so instead of four preseason games and 16 regular season games they swapped one of those so went down from four to three preseason games and up from 16 to 17 regular season games still the same um total number of games but um you know the intensity of those games i would say would go up um might be harder hits um trying to get trying to get the extra yard in a regular season game so you could see the potential for more collisions and uh, more chances of, of head trauma. So, uh, and, uh, you know, the NFL has, I'm not defending the league, but, I mean, they have invested a lot of money into concussions after, you know, the last 10 or so years, it's become a major topic of discussion and concern for um, uh, anyone from the average fan to, to the diehard fan. Um, you've seen it with how helmet rules have changed in order to uh, be more, um, just try to take out any sort of uh, variables from this. Um, so that's all I have for concussions. Um, we're going to take a quick break, and then there's a little fun segment I want to I want to start just as a fun way to work with numbers and, and what stood out to me over the past week or so uh, across sports. Um, so we will get to that right after the break 
back from the break. We are going to go to, uh, again, a new segment that I teach before the break. I'm going to call it Fun in Numbers. Fun through numbers. I'll try to come up with a better name. This is what, <laughs> this is what I got so far. But anyways, what I'm going to do is just find, you know, anywhere four to six, a handful of fun stats I found throughout the week on Twitter or anywhere else. Usually Twitter is the place where people sort of share their fun discoveries of stats that, um, you know, kind of help contextualize what has been happening around sports and that just stand out to me as, you know, just amazing finds or just really notable stats. So the first one's from Alex Mayer, at Alex Mayer 34 on Twitter. He does a lot of Mariners-based um, statistics. I can't tell if he works for the team, uh, just off a, a quick deep dive. A quick deep dive kind of uh, oxymoron there, but uh, he might work for the Mariners. But anyways, uh, Julio Rodriguez, standout rookie for the Mariners, uh, second place in the Home Run Derby, probably the American League Rookie of the Year. Um, uh, you know, another great year for rookies. Bobby Witt Jr. sort of going under the radar, even though he, I believe, he, he, I think he had a 25-25 season, which, um, you know, yeah, he's pretty much lived up to what he was touted as one of the top prospects in baseball, but Julio just came out of nowhere. Well, not came out of nowhere, but he just had a, 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 a as well a fantastic rookie season, also doing it for a Mariners team that got back to the playoffs first time since 2001, so uh, there is some credit to go there. But anyways, Julio is the fourth rookie 21 or younger with a war of six or higher and a OPS plus of 145 or greater. So that means he is almost like a third, like 1.3, like one and a third times as good as the average hitter. I I don't know if my math is right there on OPS plus. Um, and then six war, so a real all-around performance. The other three rookies, uh, those age 21 or younger with a six-plus war, 145 OPS plus, they are, uh, I think they're names you've heard of. I think you would, whenever you're listed in a stat with this company, you would probably be, uh, you'd probably be okay with it. Uh, Ted Williams in 1939, Albert Pujols in 2001, and Mike Trout in 2012. So <laughs> just incredible stuff. Um, and he only did it uh, if the Twitter replies are not lying to me. Uh, in 136 games, where uh, Teddy Ballgame did it in 149, Pools did it in incredible 161. He played a lot of the season, and Trout in 139. So uh, really <laughs> um, impressive stuff there by Julio. Oh, I completely remiss to mention Adley Rutschman uh, as well in the AL Rookie of the Year discussion. But love to see this out of Julio, one of the most exciting players in baseball. Um, and I, I think just showing how crazy his rookie year has been, um, even if the Mariners couldn't take care of business in game one in Houston, you know, that. Well, I'll get into more about Jordan Alvarez here in a minute, but uh, just an amazing hit by Jordan, um, one of the best hitters in baseball. So this one's from Field Yates. Uh, uh, I get after the departure of Matthew Barry, I'd probably call him the head of fantasy football for uh, ESPN. He he always finds some interesting nuggets to, to pull. So uh, this was after the I believe this was on Tuesday. So 
the morning after Monday Night Football between the Chiefs and the Raiders. The Chiefs, again, won in Arrowhead. Uh, he said, following last night's win, the Chiefs are now 12-9. and That's a 571 winning percentage with Patrick Mahomes as their starting quarterback when they have faced a, a 10 or more point deficit since the start of 2018. I think 2018 was his first year as a starter. And during that same stretch, all other quarterbacks are 156 and 873. That is a 152 winning percentage when trailing by 10 or more points. So if if you are a, a non-Patrick Mahomes quarterback, you know, you are, granted, I mean, I'd be curious to see what, like, Tom Brady's stats are under this these same circumstances, but... If you're down by 10 or more in a game, it's just hard to come back in the NFL. I mean, 152 over that stretch. Patrick Mahomes is over 400 percentage points better. The Chiefs are above average. They are a, a winning team, 12-9, and nine, when they are down by 10 or more. Just uh, well, Not just because they have Patrick Mahomes. I mean, there's more to the team, but it's an incredible stat, as, as feel... Uh, end of the tweet no lead is safe versus uh kc kansas city um, so that is uh pretty wild um if this is true of uh again the twitter replies but as uh, before the start of last year uh tom brady was 36 and 55 when down by 10 or more points at any point in the game including the playoffs peyton manning 29 and 63 and aaron Rodgers 13 and 46 descending in terms of winning percentage, so it goes Brady, then Peyton, then Rogers. So again, even the greats, I mean, they're better than the rest of the league, as showed by that 152. But it's just really hard when you're down by 10, you know, two scores to come back in a game, regardless of when it is in the game. So shifting over to back to baseball, as I as I uh, sort of foreshadowed a minute ago, Jordan, 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 yeah, Jordan Alvarez. His three-run homer to put the Astros ahead uh, to walk them off against the Mariners as they brought in their starter to close the game. Again, I don't know how I feel about that. If you look at the splits, Seawald, who was in the game, uh, who Robbie came in to replace, had better splits against lefties. And I really don't like bringing in guys in situations that they're not used to. Um... Yeah, just in general. I, I know it's a different scenario come playoff time, and you expect a really a frontline starter like Robbie Ray to be able to take care of business wherever they are. I mean, we saw Chris Sale do that in 2018 for the Red Sox. He became a he, – he I believe he closed out the Yankees, and uh, he, he got the last final strike in the World Series, which is really cool, just having him in that, in that picture. Um, I mean, granted – Craig Kimbrell would have been fine too, but it just it was an awesome performance by Sale. But you know, not everyone's Chris Sale, um, and Robbie Ray. I don't know if that was the right situation, but anyways, so he gave, he gave up that home run to Jordan, a three-run walk-off home run, and so this is according to Stathead uh, of Baseball Reference, a great resource for uh, advanced baseball stats and Foolish BB on Twitter, Foolish Baseball, one of my favorite YouTube pages. If you haven't checked out Foolish Baseball on YouTube, go do it. Just makes 
these little hidden storylines and, and some, maybe things you don't know about uh, baseball and uh, MLB and just makes them so interesting and so fun to watch. Uh, in a way, he inspired me to do this show just because he made stats fun and interesting and, and help uh, illustrate and, and add to uh, what you've already been watching on the field. Anyways, so Jordan's walk-off home run had a plus 91% win probability added which is the highest of any play in mlb playoff history so based off of score of the game um uh what inning you're in in this case bottom of the ninth so uh the odds were very low that the astros would win uh i believe probably number of players on base um etc it is just this sort of thing doesn't happen the, the previous leader was kirk gibson uh, his walk-off against Dennis Eckersley in uh, the, uh, sorry, I'm just pulling it up here, the 1988 World Series, the infamous, you know, pumping the fist. Um, you know, a walk-off home run, uh, again, that would uh, do it because they were down 4-3 to three at the time when he hit a home run in the bottom of the ninth. In this case, uh, Jordan, they were down by two. I believe it was 7-5, to five, and then it was a three-run home run to win the game 8-7. So, I mean, just crazy, because how the history of baseball, that that was the, I guess, the most impactful play of, of a single game. Of course, um, I, I'm not sure how you could weigh this, because, like, a, div a, a divisional series game, especially if a series tied 0-0, not even to win the series or anything like that, doesn't compare with... Kirk Gibson in the World Series. Granted, that was only game one of the World Series, but it's the World Series, not the ALDS. Uh, a lot higher stakes. But anyway, still an incredible thing. And I, another one of my favorite Twitter accounts, uh, Jeremy Frank at MLB Random Stats, looking at the top players in the league in terms of championship win probability added, combining between regular and postseason. So what players' performances have made their teams more likely to win the championship than not. Number one in the league, Jordan Alvarez at plus 12.4%. Second place is Matt Olson, 5%. So what Jordan doing is quite literally making the Astros a more, more solid as a World Series uh, contender. Uh, Aaron Judge, for those curious, is fourth at 3.9%. Um, actually behind Manny Machado, who is third at 4.9%. So, I mean, I, I don't think I would take these stats and try to interpret them so that Jordan should win the MVP over Judge. It's not how it works. But I think Jordan, I think he's just been slept on for the last couple of years. He is one of the best hitters in baseball and at the heart of the Astros lineup. I, I think he, he gets slept on because he's, he's not a real outspoken guy from, from what I know. I mean my following of the Astros has been um, I haven't really followed them too much um, but Jordan has been yeah I, he's just been a really good he hits the ball incredibly hard his exit velo numbers are insane the, the Astros continue to win a ton of games every year even if they've they lost George Springer to the Blue Jays they lose Carlos Correa to the Twins uh, uh, Justin Verlander was hurt a lot of last year. It doesn't matter. Uh, really, I'm mean, granted they, they still are having Jose Altuve and 
Alex Bregman, but they continue to produce, and Jordan Alvarez is the cog behind that. And to go off of what I was talking about, Kirk Gibson, and comparing that to Alvarez's home run, this is from Alex Spear of the Boston Globe. That was the first walk-off postseason homer since Joe Carter in 1993 of the Blue Jays walk-off homer in the World Series to turn a deficit into a win. The fourth ever, joining Lenny Dykstra in the 1986 NLCS, Kirk Gibson in the 88 World Series, and, uh, of course, Joe Carter, as I aforementioned. It just doesn't happen a lot, a walk-off postseason homer when you were losing into a win. So tie game with a home run that would then walk it off as it happens more. But it's not like the most rare thing to have a guy on base and to have a home run that would have your team win in the playoffs. It doesn't sound like anything crazy, but it's only happened four times ever, again, in the huge history of baseball. Um, granted, uh, you know, the, the playoffs didn't always work the way they are in terms of uh, having multiple rounds. I mean, uh, further expanded this year with more playoff teams and turning the wild card into a wild card like round instead of just a one game playoff. Of course, that was a change from just having one wild card team playing in the divisional series. But it just makes you think. I think it's pretty incredible. Uh, and then just just a uh, last fun in numbers I have. I, again, I might work on the name. Not not glued to. It's not airtight. Uh, this is from Sarah Langs. Uh, she, I believe she works for MLB. Um, so Joe Musgrove started for the San Diego Padres. He had a fantastic performance in Game Three of the Wild Card Series against the Mets to send them home. Some people thought that he had some sort of foreign substance in his ears. In fact, Mets. Manager Buck Showalter uh, called for the umpires to check his ears, and they didn't find anything. And, and you know, he reiterated that the umpires didn't find anything. You know, so that's all there is to say. It seems that it could have been something like icy hot, um, just based off the orange and, and gel-like nature. Um, in fact, I kind of find it interesting they weren't able to find anything. Maybe they coughed it up to earwax and sweat, and I don't know a lot. Um, so I, I don't know if the umpires missed something. I'm not trying to say that there's a cover-up or anything, but if it was what it was alleged it was, then I it, it seems hard to miss. Anyways, Musgrove, great performance. His spin numbers were up to, uh, by a healthy margin, too. I think it's something like 15%, which is, uh, is uh, if even if it's, I, again, I think it's 15%, but it, it was a higher... Uh, uh, raise in spin rate than you had anticipated, so maybe he had a little something on his on his fingers, get a little better grip, get a little more spin on the ball. Anyways, Musgrove, the fifth starter to go seven or more innings this postseason. There were only four all of last postseason, which is kind of crazy because when you think of the postseason, it's sort of well, you can let your starters go deeper, you know, ride your ride your big dogs or your horses or whatever you want to call your your workhorses of, of starting pictures. Think of like a Madison Bumgarner um, when the Giants were on that, that stretch of three World Series wins in 2012, or sorry, 2010, 2012, 2014. You know, Bumgarner picked up a lot of innings, short rest, deep into games. Anyways, 
only four last postseason, already five this postseason. I, I don't know if it's just wanting to ride your starter more and, and maybe having less faith in your bullpen. Um, maybe the bullpen was taxed at the end of the year and you want to get them a little rest or you only have confidence in a handful of guys. Maybe you used them the night before. They're not available tonight, so you got to get squeeze a little in a, another inning, couple more batters out of your, your reliever. Whatever it may be, um, it's it just something uh, interesting that stands out to me because I like seeing starters getting deep into a game, racking up the pitch count, fighting, battling, doing whatever they can, even like the Justin Verlander types, you know, throwing harder into the game, trying to mix, mix, mix up sequences to guys you're seeing the third, fourth time through the order and that internal battle within the game. I think that's what makes baseball so great. Um, and again, I think the strategy of bullpen of bullpens is still very interesting. And with the three batter minimum now, uh, the mixing and matching is a little different. So maybe instead of um, you know bringing in a lefty specialist and hoping he can get through a righty or two, uh, maybe you just might want to stick with the starter because maybe he's only allowed one hit to those three batters or, or something of the case. Uh, very interesting. Hopefully, we see more deep pitching performances like that because when you see a great picture. Um, put up good performance, you know, you want to see him go deep into the start. You don't want to see him pulled after five innings, even though he's given up one hit or something like that. So just something that stood out to me, a uh, very interesting stat there. Um, so that's all it for fun and numbers. Um, I'll, I'll get to my Thursday Night Football preview now. Uh, there, there's a little thing, I, another segment I might want to try. We'll see if we get to it. I, I'm, not, I'm not exactly uh, I'm not too committed with this. I just wanted to give us options. So Thursday Night Football tonight between the Washington Commanders and the Chicago Bears. Many people were after, uh, again, as I referenced, the uh, real, again, I'll use this word, putrid Thursday Night Football game of last week between the Broncos and the Colts. They're like, oh, well, you know, next week's got to be better. Let me look at the schedule. And then they see Commanders at Bears, and it's like, are you kidding me? We can't get any better. According to ESPN, the line right now is Washington by one on the road. So not a lot of faith in the Bears there. Um, I don't even think I mentioned earlier my what my pick had been for Broncos-Colts. And if I hit it, I said Broncos by a touchdown because, uh, uh, well, my reasoning, Broncos are a better team, take care of business at home. And I think that Thursday night games can be so wonky that you can just see a blowout, and it's not the most surprising thing. So that being said, if we're looking at Commanders, uh, Bears, oh man, like I just can't, you know, who is, which is the lesser of two evils here? Carson Wentz and, uh, you know, it doesn't seem like Ron Rivera has a lot of confidence in him with his comments he's made about the issue at quarterback uh, for the team, even if the rest of the there's been a lot of talent uh, throughout the rest of the roster, or Justin Fields, who is just flat out underwhelming as a starting quarterback in the NFL. Someone who I was very high of out of Ohio State in the NFL draft. I thought he'd be a great player for the Patriots as a guy they could scheme uh, interesting things for as a good as a, as like a winner per se. Oh boy, uh, well David Montgomery's back for the Bears. He returned last week after, I believe, it was a one-week absence. Where, I mean, but Khalil Herbert still filled in admirably. It's going to be in Chicago. Good good fan base there. 
Ah, man, it's, again, lesser of two evils. I'll go Commanders by, uh, I'll say Commanders by three or more. Commanders by a field goal. Now, Carson Wentz, he, if he hasn't had a chip from all the, from, on his shoulder from all the teams he's been traded from and all the crap he's gotten over the years, then maybe his, his own coach seemingly going public against him might do the trick. Uh, you know, another week of Brian Robinson, that three-headed uh, committee they have there in the backfield between Brian Robinson, J.D. McKissick, and Antonio Gibson. I think they can scheme up things well. I, again, I like their I like their receiving talent. Uh, it seems like Logan Thomas will play very solid tight end, um, and then they also have Curtis Samuel and Jahan Dotson and Terry McLaurin, and the and the talent on the defensive line again. Montez Sweat, Chase Young, Jonathan Allen, great group of pass rushers who should be able to get to Justin Fields early and often. So I will go Commanders by three or more. Um, I'm not giving betting advice, but you know maybe you could do an alternate spread by three because if they're favored by one, you know if you if you really believe in them, you could go a little more. Although you know you could just stick with the one, just think they're going to win, like more like a money line play. Uh, yeah, am I too confident in it? No, <laughs> because I mean, it's it's eighth Thursday night football, so things are unpredictable. And then we're looking at the Bears and the Commanders. Do I have a lot of faith in them? No, but that's where we are. And next Thursday, hopefully, things get better. It's Saints Cardinals. I believe it would be the return of DeAndre Hopkins, if I'm correct. So, help shore up the receiving core for Kyler Murray, even if. Marquise Brown's been great. Rondell Moore coming back. He had, I believe, eight targets this week or last week. Uh, Zach Ertz been good, although James Conner's a little banged up. That whole backfield's been banged up. And then the Saints. Uh, the Cardinals are playing the Saints uh, at home, so in Arizona. See if they get Jameis Winston back, Michael Thomas back again. And at the moment, they're both two and three teams. Both should be playing better than that. Uh, according to ESPN, they say the spread would be two and a half in favor of Arizona at the moment. Anyways, we'll get to that next week when the time comes. So, uh, again, I'll end a minute or two early here, get you back to the music. Uh, so this has been Throwback Saturday with Peter Howard. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Wherever you listen, whether it's live on the radio here or on the podcast, I really appreciate the support. And everyone, have a great Thursday, Friday, and weekend. <laughs>